I was just sitting in Buddy's office, and I played the Bela thing. He said, where'd you get that? And I said, well, it's from a Bela Fleck thing. And he said, well, Bela can do it because he knows how to do it right. You need to learn the other one first. You know, that's the whole thing, you know. You you learn all of the, the chords and scales and modes, and, you know, you get smart alecky in class, and you say, well, Mozart didn't do that. And the teacher says, yeah, but Mozart knew why he didn't do it. You know, he learned all those rules, and then he broke them. Greetings and welcome in, everybody. It's your favorite time of the approximately every two weeks uh, that we can get together and discuss banjos with another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Yeah, I'm doing my best. I tell myself it's every two weeks, but sometimes that gets fudged and... Um, you know, I'm, I'm just doing my best to get by, just like we all are, right? We're going to get back with an excellent interview episode here today. But uh, thanks for everyone for tuning in to the last episode, Davy Jones teaching about chord melodies. One of you even recorded one, the uh, which was a, a chord melody theme song from that television show, The Office, which totally blew my daughter's mind. She's a huge fan of The Office. And she has to listen to her dad carry on about banjos and, and talk about his podcast all the time. So it was a really, uh, you know, her worlds were colliding in a perhaps confusing way. But uh, that was really cool. And I'm glad that people are making use out of that. It was great. But uh, like I said, we're getting back to a great guest interview. But before that, it's a heavy news day here at uh, Picky Fingers HQ. And uh, so, so I'll go through some of this stuff here. Where do I want to start? Okay, first thing, my favorite part of the episodes, of course, is always when we get to thank our beautiful, lovely, talented Patreon supporters. And there are two sponsors of today's episode. The first is Joshua Adkison. Joshua brews beer and he plays the banjo, which is like two of my favorite B words right there. Actually, he only started playing banjo this year. He says it's his ninth instrument. And Joshua, congrats on finally getting it right. After nine tries, you finally found the coolest instrument of them all. Glad you're uh, glad you're on Team Banjo. It's really good to have you as a fellow banjo player and obviously as a Patreon supporter. So thank you very much for your support. Oh, and I almost forgot. Joshua is single-handedly responsible on a... If any of you are on Facebook, Joshua recommended that I start a group to discuss this podcast, maybe other banjo-related stuff, basically just just start a, a group for us all to chat about stuff. And I did that. So if any of you are on Facebook, look up... And I'm, uh, I'm typing it in on my phone as we speak so I can get the name right. Uh, there's a group called... Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast listeners, fans, and friends. Uh, join that group and we can discuss episodes or future episodes or critiques or your own banjo things. Just another Facebook community for us to gather in between these uh, two weeks with an asterisk uh, that we get to hang out on the podcast itself. So Joshua, thanks for the Patreon support. Thanks for the good idea. Hats off to you, man. The other Patreon supporter of today's podcast is Sean Downing. Sean is an old metal kid, and 
somehow he found the banjo, I guess. He plays in a band out of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. They're called Three Beards and a Bush. I'm not going to conjecture anything about how they got that name. But anyway, they uh, they play, it sounds like a very interesting mix of, uh, you know, bluegrass, but mixed with um, some unusual tune selection. And I haven't checked them out yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Apparently they play some uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear. So I'm always down for new explorations for the banjo. Love it. Thanks, Sean, for supporting the podcast. You know, as weird as it sounds, I think there's actually a lot more similarities between heavy metal music and bluegrass than people might think offhand. And anybody who's played both of them, I have not played heavy metal, but I'm I'm recognizing that there is a a certain intensity to both styles of music that I, I think overlaps more than people maybe give it credit for. So um maybe that's not so surprising to hear that that Sean is into both of those things. Anyway, Sean and Joshua, thank you both so much for your Patreon support of the podcast. Anybody looking to check that out for yourselves, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and you'll learn about the rewards. One of the coolest new rewards that is offered is uh, there's this fella named Eli Gilbert. And what he's doing is for every guest on the episode, he is making a custom lesson based on their banjo stylings. And he'll be providing a, a link to a video and also a tab sheet for a custom lesson based on the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast episode with that guest. And if you go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, you can figure out how to get on that list to receive that bonus content. It's super cool. Eli is very good at what he does. And actually, I'll go ahead and recommend that, you know, if any of you are already on Patreon supporting this or maybe some other things, he is doing some uh, some really amazing things with banjo and also jazz guitar. Or at least check out his YouTube channel and give him a subscribe on there. That helps him as well, even if you're not able to financially support uh, the Patreon site. So for those of you who have signed up on Patreon, definitely keep your eye out over the next very short period of time. I'll be sending you the link to Eli's tab sheet and his custom lesson for this episode. Okay, next order of business. What do I need to talk about? I want to talk about my good friend, Aaron Jonah Lewis, who you, of course, will know if you listened to episode number 22. And if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out. Aaron talks all about his classic banjo style. And something really cool that happened after that episode is, I, th- I think I uh, I must have impressed Aaron with my podcast microphones and everything like that because after that he was like you know i'm thinking about recording a banjo album and you have some recording gear why don't you record it for me so i was really flattered i'm not really a professional recording engineer but i do have microphones and i do have recording stuff so i ended up recording a banjo album for aaron and it's amazing it just came out it's record. It's called uh, Mozart of the Banjo, the Joe Morley Project, and basically it's just Aaron shredding some uh, classic banjo, along with mostly piano accompaniment, but uh, some other instruments as well. So give it a little bit of a listen to see what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, this is good stuff. Keep listening for a minute. check that out if you dig that track that i was just playing there's like tons of more of that on the album and that's being distributed through the record label old time tiki parlor just like it sounds except it's the uh, british spelling of parlor the p-a-r-l-o-u-r so uh check that out on that website i'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so yeah check it out i think it's really cool pretty amazing how something that used to be popular even before Scruggs-style banjo now sounds so novel and uh, fresh, you know? So uh, good job, Aaron. And yeah, everyone check that out. All right, next thing. I told you it was a heavy news day. You'll just have to deal with it for for another few minutes. Uh, This interview with Derek Vaden was recorded at the Milan Bluegrass Festival up here in Michigan and uh, I guess a brief a brief note about Milan. We all have a chuckle about it up here. The two most popular traditional bluegrass music festivals in Michigan is Milan and Charlotte. And it's kind of a joke because Milan is spelled like Milan would be, like in Italy, except we call it Milan. And the Charlotte Bluegrass Festival is spelled exactly like you would expect Charlotte to be spelled but we call it Charlotte, and people will correct you if you don't say it right. So it's kind of a bluegrass joke up here that all the bluegrass festivals happen in cities where the names are pronounced funny. But anyway, I digress. Uh, this was recorded at the Milan Bluegrass Festival, and I have to give another special thanks for this episode to a gentleman named Jerry Eicher. And Jerry is a guy who some of you might recognize He's a radio DJ and he hosts a show called the Old Hippie Bluegrass Show. And if you go to oldhippiebluegrassshow.com, that's old just as in O-L, uh, hippiebluegrassshow.com, you'll see a picture right there of Jerry looking absolutely amazing and find out how you can listen to his program. If you enjoy bluegrass music, it's going to be right up your alley. But anyway, the reason I need to thank Jerry is because I was... Uh, down at the Milan Bluegrass Festival and getting ready to interview Derek Vaden. And, you know, I, I was trying to scope out some good uh, interview places, trying to get it away from too much of the main stage noise. Wasn't having too much luck. I was about ready to just set up at a picnic table right around the festival campground. And Jerry really came through. He offered up his RV and his luxurious accommodations for me to just be comfortable and sit with the guest and get a really good interview. So, um, Jerry, that was very generous of you, my friend. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for the hospitality and for uh, helping me out. The podcast is definitely better because of it. Okay, finally, I can start talking about today's guest is Derek Vaden. And I think... 
it seems like it was sort of a, a destiny thing that I was I was meant to interview Derek Vaden. I was perusing around Instagram as you do, and I stumbled across a hashtag called Tuner Tune Thursday by this dude who I didn't really know who he was, but he was playing a whole bunch of different tunes on D-Tuners, and I was really fascinated by it, and I watched a whole bunch of them. And then uh, Gina Furtado, who who you know from the episode, uh, the great banjo player Gina Furtado, she's been super cool about sending me recommendations of other players that she knows that she thinks would be good podcast interviews. And it was probably that same day I got a text from her that says, hey, you should interview Derek Vaden. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was just, you know, watching his stuff today. Uh, So I just discovered him on my own the same day he was recommended to me. And then I check his tour dates and he was coming to the Milan Festival a few weeks after that. So it just seemed to make way too much sense. So I got a hold of him and fortunately it worked out. And we hopped in Jerry Iker's RV and uh, the rest is history. So enjoy here. Uh, this is, oh, I, I didn't even mention he was playing with the Larry Stevenson band. And Larry Stevenson, of course, is the uh, very well-known bluegrass artist, very much in the mold of like a Bobby Osborne. And Derek's playing banjo with him. So I was really happy to catch their set, hear Derek play and sit down and chat with him. So here it is, my conversation with Derek Vaden of the Larry Stevenson Band. Uh, I'm actually from Kansas. I live in North Carolina now. play mm-hmm. with uh, the Larry Stevenson Band. Yeah, and I just saw you guys did a great job, and it's, for a good reason, such a, a legendary act. Thank but um, how, how did you discover the banjo over in... Over in Kansas. Well, my family played bluegrass. Lots of uh, lots of guitar players. One bass player, one mandolin player, and a lot of guitar players. And there's actually a, a very lively bluegrass scene in Kansas and Missouri mm-hmm. and Oklahoma and Arkansas and down in Texas as well. And so we we grew up going to festivals in Missouri and Arkansas and there was one in Park City, Kansas, which is just north of Wichita. And I'm actually, I guess I should say this, I'm from Arkansas City, Kansas, which is 10 miles south of Winfield, okay. which yeah. everyone knows about. But we didn't go there, oddly enough, just because yeah. it was a big ticket price. And we were in Winfield all the time anyway, and we thought, why do we want to go to this festival? And we really just need to go to Walmart or... Needed something a little what, more exotic to, to attract you to. Exactly. <laughs> nice. But uh, no, we'd travel a little farther and and go to, like I said, uh, Harrison, Arkansas was one, and there used to be a festival in uh, in Pierce City, Missouri, called the Dry Valley Bluegrass Festival, and the Park City, Kansas Festival, and there's a festival in Wichita every year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't have the, the saturation that the, the East Coast has, but you know, four or five good festivals a year and Lonesome River Band would be there and Ron Vincent would be there and Larry Stevenson and 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 all those people growing up. And then there are a lot of really good regional bands, Frank Ray and Cedar Hill and mm-hmm. Bill Mounts and the Outlaws and and uh Bill Granton was still doing stuff and lots of people like that. And I actually didn't play when I was little. 
um, I started playing violin when I got to middle school. Just like through the school orchestra yeah. program? Mm-hmm. All right. And when I, when I sort of realized that, hey, everybody, you know, because you start playing violin and everybody wants you to play the fiddle and wants you to play fiddle tunes and stuff. I was rubbish at that. I could, <laughs> I could never get the bow hand to do what the bow hand needed to do yeah. to play the fiddle. I could play the classical stuff, all right. But So I got a, I got a mandolin shortly after that. I played that for a little while. And a little after that, I got a guitar. And it was uh, maybe my eighth grade year. I'd been playing music for a couple of years at this point. And um, we were somewhere, and my uncle had a banjo in the closet. And I just started fooling with it one day. And my grandma got really mad because she... there. <laughs> we had a family band... She's going to hate me telling this story. We had a family band, uh, or they had a family band. I was I was too little at the time. And they had a guy playing banjo from from a little around where we lived. And she did not care particularly for him or the way he played the banjo. Okay. And, and we're not naming names, I assume, at least for that. Well, he's dead, so it wouldn't matter. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, the family might still be alive, so I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, uh, but she just didn't really care for the way he played the banjo and developed this perception of banjo players. And people think this is a joke when I say this, but she came to me and she said, "I don't want you to play the banjo." So that's exactly what I did. Oh, that it, it was that your was, rebellious. That phase. was my was that was my uh, my banjo origin story. I was just told not to play the banjo, so I did. I've I've heard that. Um, a lot of people ask Earl Scruggs how he got his all his boys to be so interested in music, and and what he always says is, "I told them they weren't allowed to touch any of my <laughs> instruments." So yeah, yeah te- teens have a strange way of, you know, forcing you into some reverse psychology, I guess. But yeah, and of course now so she you, comes. Were you to hired the... right away to replace this person who wasn't really? Oh well, it? at that point in time, they hadn't had the family band for quite a while. My it it was originally uh, my mom's three brothers. There's four of them, her and three brothers, and all three of the brothers played. And it was them. One played the bass, one guitar, one mandolin. My grandpa played guitar, and then the banjo player. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know, 96 or 97, that just sort of all fizzled out. Yeah. And I started playing banjo in 2002, and it was maybe the year after it was maybe two years after that and how i'm losing track a little bit how old are you at that point uh 12 okay yeah i started when i was 12 and um it was maybe two or three years after that because i had to you know get stuff down right uh that the family band started coming back together but by that point um the my cousin was playing bass who was the son of the bass player uncle so it was him and me would play a lot we were Mm -hmm. closer in age we'd play a lot on the weekends and do stuff and get together and learn things were you learning on your you said it was your uncle that had a banjo in the closet and it was uh it was that banjo okay for the first first year and a half maybe was he a player he had done uh he was the guitar player okay in the band and he had done a record up in Lawrence, Kansas in about 
94 or 95 and he he's primarily a, a guitar and a mandolin player and uh, don't <laughs> care if I do die do die do <laughs> uh, he was primarily a guitar and a mandolin player and he got a bass and a banjo uh-huh. and picked out 10 songs and cut the guitar and the mandolin parts and then learned the bass and the banjo parts for this 10 songs. That was that like he'd... his project that he wanted yeah. to, to accomplish. And he, he knew just enough of a three-finger roll to make it through those 10 songs that he did. Okay, well, that was, that's actually kind of what I was getting at was, did you have somebody around to, to show you stuff? I figured that since he was the one who had the banjo, maybe he was able to help you, but maybe not. Uh, no. He, okay. it, oddly enough, he... Um, you know, we were, he lived, um, it was right around the time they opened up Kansas Speedway out in in Kansas City. It was uh, a, the Speedway is in like a, a car race track? Yeah, it was a, okay, it was yeah. a NASCAR sanctioned track. And my my family were big into that. And they got season tickets. And it was the very first weekend was, uh, oh, actually, I guess I've been playing a year longer than I thought I was. <laughs> I guess it was 2001 because that was the first year they had the, the races up there. And okay. it was... Um, we went up there because he didn't live but about half an hour from the track. And the family camped out in his yard. And of course, music was played and food cooked and all that fun stuff. And he, uh, I remember that being the time that I got the banjo, but I don't remember getting shown anything. I think I, I sort of had this thing in my head of what, of how I thought it was played. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Distinction there, not how I thought it should be played, but how I thought it worked. Right. As a 12 year old, and I remember I started like. It was just like a two finger. Like a, okay, yeah. Two finger thing, and because you, you can sort of emulate that. That square roll, yeah. Of course, not with the pull offs and stuff, but that's sort of what I was. Because I was playing guitar at that point, so I had like a. Once you figure out the. That's essentially the same chord shape. Oh, yeah, the three middle yeah. strings are, are translate. Yeah, I was I was sort of just picking it up at that point and trying to figure that out. And Did you have favorite players that you were that you were listening to? I didn't know anything about it at that point. Okay, I didn't have you know the bands that I were exposed to up to that point were were the local bands that we would see in person, uh-huh. and then I think my mom really liked that first rarely heard record. Okay. Midnight Loneliness. All right. Came out in like 91 or 92. And then I remember Grandpa had... It didn't come out while Flat and Scruggs were together. It was a compilation from from the mid-70s or something. And it had it had a bunch of train songs on it, like Orange Blossom Special and Atlantic Coastal Line, and Brave Number 1262, and Starlight on the Rails. And like a compilation of their train songs for some reason. My Grandpa had that tape, and then... You know, used to be at bluegrass festivals that you could record anything you wanted, and they'd take a cassette recorder mm-hmm. and just set it by their chair and record the stuff. So we had like all those Midwest bands that I talked about, and then there was like a, a couple of Lewis family boot, sets, bootleg tapes. Yeah, yeah, cool. And but I didn't know who any of those people were at the time. Yeah. And when I started playing, I started digging through their record collection because they still had a pretty extensive record collection at that point. And um, I found the the Will the Circle being broken out. The first they one. Had the, yeah, they had the, the whole complete set. It was three sleeves and uh, six sides and all that stuff. Yeah. 
and I started playing that and working all the way through. And you know, that's how I learned who Earl Scruggs was, like actually was, and you know, Doc Watson and Merle Travis, all those and other guys, Mother Maybell and Jimmy yeah. Martin. The the classic Jimmy Martin phrase that everybody knows is, "Well, pick the band you're solid, John. <laughs> you picked one for 15 years, ain't you?" <laughs> and you know, that's how that that's that's really how the my bluegrass knowledge started were you able to do pretty well picking up the you were teaching yourself to play off of those recordings so you know we were just talking about this coming down here because we'd listened to uh, you know when we first started talking i told you i'd listen to other other episodes and there were a few people that talked about the the slowdown technology mm -hmm. that this was a couple of years before that right. youtube hadn't even started yet yeah so you know, you it was all rewind button. And I didn't know that you could, showing my age slightly, I didn't know that you could slow down a record. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't taught how to use a record player. I just <laughs> sort of figured it out, you know. And I didn't know that if you slowed it down. It, it sounds like you and I started at almost exactly the, the same time. You're, you're a few years mm -hmm. younger than I am. But, yeah, so the technology definitely lines up the same yeah. way where... It was just, it was, yeah, just before you're able to do some of that. And, but it's still a little late to really have access to a lot of records. Sounds like you mm -hmm. had access to some, but. Oh, yeah. And it, you know, I almost sort of like it better, though. Because mm -hmm. I think, and I, I think this about everything that anybody does. You sort of need to, like, get in there and make mistakes and get messed up. Huh. And you almost, I mean, not that you need to learn to do it wrong. But if you get in there and luck into doing it right, you don't really learn anything. I, I definitely know what you mean. It almost, it's a weird kind of creativity. Yeah. Is trying to do something but not doing it quite right. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes what you do. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Which, which served me well later. I don't know. I think if I just lucked right into it or had somebody show me what was going on. I mean, not to call myself more creative than I actually am, but I don't think I would be as creative I think I'd just be some sort of weird clone player, hmm. which is not interesting at all for anybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what were the what were the next steps? To, like, is it skipping too far to to ask what was the situation where you moved to to North Carolina? Was that to play it's banjo? A, it's a little far. It's uh, okay. There was a lot that happened in between there. To to go back to that that wheel the circle thing, really quick. I was still playing that two finger messed up thing okay. when I found that record. Even here in Scruggs and, and McEwen and, and those guys. Yeah, and the first seminal moment in my life was uh, at, at Byron Berlines Festival in um, uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma in 2003, October 2003. Earl was going to play there. And my grandpa was like, we need to go see this. Okay. Like, if you're going to play the banjo, you need to go see this. Yeah, yeah. And so we went down there, and it rained all day long. And two things happened that day. I got to see Earl Scruggs, and I met Blake Williams, who will uh, come into the story later. Yeah, okay. But So we went down there, and I was, for the first time, just around a lot of banjo players. Uh, John Hickman was still playing really good at that point and hmm. still playing with Byron. Uh, Blake was there. Earl was there, but you didn't see Earl until the show. Uh, Jens Kruger was there. Oh, man. That was my first exposure to Jens Kruger. 
So and these are the, the top pros, where up until that point, it sounds like you were mostly exposed to the regional guys, yeah, which, is, exactly. which is fine, but that's, yeah, that's another level. And that's, you know, that's when I really noticed that, hey, I need to figure out what this, this third finger's doing. Ah. And I went back, and all through that winter, I went to the, all the way to side six, to the wheel of the circle cut, and Earl kicked it off, and he went... And mm-hmm. just, he would, for the longest time, I would, I would get about that far, and I'd take it back, and I'd play through it again, just repeatedly. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I wasn't locking in. It was very just clumsy. And then, you know, eventually, one day, it just clicked. And the I had the forward roll going, and I was, and everything changed after With that. With all three fingers fully all three integrated, fingers. you know, I, I I still couldn't do the other rolls. I wasn't really getting like the whole hammer on, pull off thing, but the roll started to be there. And I, you know, once you figure out, once you figure out the wheel of circle being broken thing, you can move on to some other songs that are on that that record you can start you know figure out the the chorus parts to or the the non-tuner parts to earl's breakdown and mm-hmm. flint hill special and yeah. then maybe eventually move on to my walk and shoes don't fit me anymore and yeah get in there and that's how all that started and then um start to hear the possibilities too well, yeah. once you once you're hip to the fact that that's what you need to do you you hear it differently too mm-hmm. and i started uh from that point i started um you know, just going through all that stuff and being more brave with with other banjo players at at you know festivals and walking up and talking to them and seeing what they're doing. Again, still regional guys and stuff. Uh, but the next year, two thousand four, uh, we saw Blake and Kimberly Williams at Starvey Creek, which is in southern Missouri, because J D Crow was going to be there. So we went over to see J D Crow, and and they were there, and we would remembered seeing them. Previously, at the Guthrie thing, yeah, yeah, and my grandpa knew the guitar player from years ago, and so I just, you know, in a in a moment of teenage gumption, I strode up to Blake Williams and started talking and and got to know them a little bit, and then the next year we saw them at a they were at Winfield, so that was the first year I went to Winfield, it was two thousand five, mm-hmm. and they played there, and uh, they got me up on stage to play at Winfield that year. I played old Joe Clark. Was that your first time performing? In a, not that I was a professional, but in a quote-unquote professional situation. Uh-huh. We had had the family band for about a year at this point. Okay. So I was like playing in front of people of, you know, between 10 and 30 people. So this was a big deal. This was a big deal, you know, to step out and there's a thousand people Winfield, standing in yeah. front of you. We saw him again next year. We went to Sally Mountain, Rhonda Vincent's festival uh-huh. up there. I was exposed to, uh, Blake was there and... He and Kenny Ingram did a a banjo workshop up there, which was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Because is that Ken, when Kenny was playing with Rhonda? With Rhonda, okay. yeah. And he uh, he didn't touch the banjo. He just sat there and talked and told stories and talked about how he played the banjo, which I thought was amazing. Because at Winfield, if you go to a workshop, it's just four guys sitting on stage yeah. playing tunes for yeah. an hour, you know. And here's Kenny Ingram telling you how he does it. What did you do? You remember anything that he? That you got from that, or were you the just... only thing that I remember was he talked about how there were only 
I'm going to muff this up, but he uh, he said there were only five banjo players when he started. So there was Earl Scruggs and J.D. Crow and Sonny Osborne and Alan Shelton. And I, I can't... Ralph Stanley or something? Yeah, Ralph. And he okay. said there were, <laughs> there were just those five. Wow. And because this is... I don't know, 54 or 55 when okay. he started playing. And that's all there was. And if you wanted, I mean, that's who you listen to. If, uh-huh. that's, and he was talking about how it's so different now. And he sort of wished that people had that basis. Because you had get the, those really solid foundations. He of, wishes they had the basis of having to start by listening to those um, first generation guys. I think that's is, what is that his what ultimate meant? point was. Okay. Uh, just you know, having fewer choices, because yeah. you know at that point, Scrug style is like commercially ten years old, mm-hmm. fifty four and fifty five, and like it can be argued that if you learn, I've heard Sonny Osborne say it: if you study the Foggy Mountain banjo record and start at the beginning and play it till the end and learn where every note goes on that record, you can play any style you want to play. Do you, do you uh, buy into that? I, I think it's a darn good start. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's a really good way for the type of banjo I play. Yes, I think I'm I'm very rooted in the Scrug style. And in college, I was sort of forced to like learn that note for note and figure some things out. And my understanding of the banjo after that experience, having learned and studied all that stuff, is so much greater, and I feel like I can play a lot more. Huh. I mean, I'm not a very melodic player. I'm not a very... I'm not good with complicated rhythms playing in 5 and 7 and 11. I, I don't get that my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. But but for for playing bluegrass music, and especially traditional bluegrass music, it's really easy to tell the banjo players that have really studied it and those that haven't. Is it something that you can articulate what that is that you that tells you if they've done that or not or is it just something about you know my college Buddy Griffin I went to school in West Virginia and I studied with Buddy Griffin who's a great Scruggs and Reno player and mostly known as a fiddle player but he's a fantastic banjo player. He said I don't this isn't really going to clear anything up I don't think but he said it's really easy to tell the people that know it but don't play it versus the people that don't play it because they don't know it. Hmm. And, you know, I played some, uh, I'd learned, I don't even remember where the recording came from, but there's some recording of Bela playing ground speed. And at that point in time, I didn't know how to play ground speed correctly. And I played this, uh, the Earl Scruggs B part is... And Bailey did something like, yeah. but I couldn't play the Earl Scruggs right at that point. And uh, I was just sitting in Buddy's office, and I played the Bailey thing. He said, "Where'd you get that?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, it's from a Bailey Fleck thing." And he said, "Well, Bailey can do it because he knows how to do it right. You need to learn the other one first. And that's sort of how I've. You're allowed to break the rules only exactly. after you've, uh... which you know, my. Before I went out there, I got my associate's degree in in music and music theory, which is something I haven't kept up with properly. But mm-hmm. 
you know, that's the whole thing, you know. You you learn all of the, the chords and scales and modes and, you know, you get smart alecky in class and you say, well, Mozart didn't do that. And the teacher says, yeah, but Mozart knew why he didn't do it. Yeah. yeah he the, learned all those rules and then he broke them. It's about the intention. Exactly. Or like, a, the, or the purpose. I don't know if that answered the question at all, but it's a... Well, there, yeah, there, there's some sort of abstract hmm. difference with it, yeah. And there's a there's a there's like there's an attitude that you that you get the whole when you start talking about musical feeling like this it all gets super abstract and esoteric but what's the a, saying talking about music is like dancing about architecture or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know who said that but it, it makes like, sense yeah i like that uh it's very true but there's a there's an attitude you get if if you study if you really study earl because it, it you you place notes in a certain way Mm-hmm. And Sonny and JD had that that Earl attitude, and if you you know if you think about if you go all the way back to the beginning, you think about like Ralph Stanley. Mm-hmm. Ralph Stanley started playing Mountain Clawhammer first, and then transitioned into into uh, the three finger style. And his attitude is completely different than that of the the Earl Scruggs From Earl, yeah. and you know or. Or Don Don Reno, you know, modern Don Reno players are actually a good example because they the way that they play and the way they feel the music is totally different than the the Flat and Scruggs descended yeah bands, and you know, there's a lot of speculation that that was a, a conscious branding decision on Don Reno's part hmm. in the early '50s when they started recording because they came from the same area and they learned the same style from the same person. Uh, oh really? The, okay. The Shelby Flint Hill area, in North Carolina. They yeah. learned from Snuffy Jenkins and and Matt Crow and those people. And then, you know, there's the that whole uh, philosophical debate about what if Don Reno hadn't gone to the military? Gone, exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. Would we all be? Would Earl Scruggs be the? Not that Don Reno is a a black sheep or something like that, but yeah, he yeah. He's, he's second fiddle and. and in most he people's is, eyes, too. and yeah. you know, which is sort of a, a travesty, but it is right. Uh, but you know, he, there's just a like a, an attitude that you get from studying the Earl Scruggs lineage. That if you know, a lot of people, and I don't want this to come out wrong because I love people like like uh, like Noam Pakelny and and Wes Corbett. I know you had Wes on. Sure, they are fantastic players, uh-huh. and they make beautiful music. But you can certainly tell that they started with, like, Bela and that group of players and then circled around... Worked backwards. ...to Earl, mm-hmm. which which is not a bad way to go, but, I mean, it's just... It, it's, it's a very evident mm-hmm. lineage. And I've already forgotten what the original point of this conversation was. <laughs> we we but, were talking about, did Don Reno intentionally adopt some differences to, to distinguish himself from from Earl. And I guess also did Ralph Stanley also intentionally adopt some differences. I don't know where we were before that. 
The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time Banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time Banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. Where we, let's talk about you, though. Oh, yeah. That, that's what we're supposed to be talking about. This is, I mean, I, I love talking about those guys, too. Lots but. of bluegrass banjo opinions here. But how did, how did you make strides? So you went to school for for music what were you learning what were you discovering what did you figure out that you maybe are still using today so, or, or you would tell pe- other people to do to really improve their learning process well i had uh, i was at a festival right after i graduated high school or right before i graduated high school in 2007 and um blake blake was there with the williams and clark expedition that band and i was up on stage playing with them and um jesse mcreynolds was there and Buddy Griffin was there playing fiddle with Jesse McReynolds. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daniel Grindstaff was playing banjo with Jesse at that point. And uh, Blake and them had me up to play a song. And I played one of Blake's tunes. And um, uh, Buddy came up to me after the show and he was like, hey, where are you going to college? Because I think Kimberly had announced that I was graduating high school. Okay. And he told me all about Glenville State College and they just started their four-year degree program in bluegrass performance, which was the first in the world. Oh, really? Uh, it was. And I could, I'd already committed to a community college in my hometown, which I'm, I'm glad I did because it was a good uh, theory-based uh-huh. education. And I, did, I got my associate's degree there, and then I went to Glenville and study with Buddy for a while. And when I got out there, he he really picked apart what I was doing. Mm-hmm. He's he's a very has a very thorough Earl Scruggs knowledge and showed me a lot of things that a lot of people don't get right and showed me I'm not to say that I do them right, but you know, it showed me what the right way was versus what I was doing. What are some of these things that, that uh, a lot of people don't get right? A good example for is uh, <laughs> a good example is in um, Little Darling Pal of Mine. There's a weird little okay. Yeah. And um, it just, when I was playing Little Darling Pal of Mine at that point, because, you know, the Carnegie Hall record was 
heavy on my rotation and I don't I don't remember what I was doing before that lick was introduced to me but um, he stopped me right when I got to it he said that's not right and he showed it to me and it took you know it took a good day to get that it's something I don't think about now and it just goes in there yeah. but it took a good day to get that figured out and then like that started started my brain working huh. and you know putting putting the right role on on Ruben I don't remember what I was doing before that but okay. it showed me what the Ruben was supposed to be and like basically showed you that you you needed to be even more careful about how you were listening to it was was that yeah is that kind of the point uh yeah and just because i went back a couple years after i'd i'd left there and i was teaching some of the students and there's this one kid that wanted to learn some sammy sheeler thing or 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 something like some some modern player like that and uh I said, well, if you want to learn that, you need to learn this thing that Earl does. And I didn't really realize it up to that point. But, you know, if you learn, this is my my overarching point, I think. If you learn that stuff and you learn it well and specifically uh, you're down to the note like Buddy was trying to teach me, you can go out and you can play Sammy Sheeler stuff because you know how all that stuff works together. Everything Sammy's mm. playing, everything... You know that Kenny Ingram played everything that Aaron McDarish plays. Yeah. Kristen Scott Benson. It all starts right there. And if you want to play that modern style of bluegrass, you've got to study all that stuff. And then you get that. You get the fingerboard knowledge. You get the roll knowledge. You get the knowledge of when you're supposed to drop your thumb down to the second string. And you know. And how do people do that? In my case, I really needed to be shown. I wasn't. I wasn't uh, I grew up in Kansas and there there just wasn't anybody to show me mm-hmm. and I needed to be corrected so I had developed up to a point incorrectly yeah and then I got I got into a situation where there was somebody knowledgeable enough to show me everything that I wasn't doing right with regards to Earl okay I want to say with regards to Earl because yeah. right is rather subjective but with regards to Earl. And, you know, once once I was shown all that and knew what it was supposed to be, you could go back and you can play along with all these Earl Scruggs recordings correctly. You can get your timing down and your, your note separation and all that stuff that everybody likes to talk about. Mm-hmm. And you can really focus on that stuff and get it right. And then you can find yourself in a situation where you're playing more modal or modern or minor or in some weird tuning and you don't have to worry about your right hand at all because you've got a really solid banjo foundation yeah so needing to be so you said it helped you having someone correct you with regards to earl you made sure to to qualify it like that how does how does that whole thing intersect with what you said earlier about sometimes you need to be forced to make mistakes to push yourself into finding your own style in like in which ways did you maybe retain 
that sort of started in um, while I was at Glenville because every year they have a a bluegrass artist come to play with the college band for their annual concert. And the year that I was there, Ronnie Reno came out. Mm -hmm. And the bluegrass band for the college did a set of songs, and Ronnie came out and did, I think, five songs with us. And he gave us a bunch of Reno and Smiley songs that we were going to do with him. And Buddy, being the, the sort of teacher that he is, made me learn the Don Reno breaks to these songs. And, you know, the concert goes off well, and we're standing out in the lobby, and Ronnie says, hey, I want to tell you something. That was really good, what you did. But if you go out there and play, don't play like my dad. Hmm. Do your own thing. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. That, and that's that. coming from somebody who probably has more respect for that music than hmm. just about anybody. Exactly. Um, and he's telling you not to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, fast forward a couple of years, I've, I've moved to Asheville at this point, and I, I just happened to move in next door to, to Marty Lewis who's the son of, of Ralph Lewis, who played guitar with Bill Monroe in the mid-70s. Yeah. And I got, I got in with that bunch playing locally a lot. And uh, I had a band called the Sons of Ralph. Okay. It's a bass and guitar, and then Don Lewis played uh, fiddle, and then Ralph would come out and play mandolin sometimes. Okay. And we ended up having this weekly gig at a restaurant in, um, in Asheville every Wednesday night, 7 to 9. And uh, I did that for about a year, and I was playing out with the first band that I played with, Jerry Butler and the Blue Jays. Uh, I was playing out with him still at that time, and I'd come home and have this weekly gig. And I sort of treated that gig as my experiment, because the Sons of Ralph had played together for years at this point, uh -huh. and all the, the rhythmic foundation, they, they weren't listening to me play. Like, <laughs> unless it was like a kickoff... Yeah. Anything past that was just, yay, we've got a banjo player now. Yeah, he'll make his banjo noise and we'll exactly. play our rhythm. So I used that gig to try out ideas and licks and chords and oh, that's, all this fun that's stuff. That's fantastic. And I, I fell on my ass most every uh -huh. night, multiple times. Just bad. Uh -huh. If I did that today at this festival with Larry, I'd, I'd quit. You'd get fired, right. I, well, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably get fired, but I'd quit before that. <laughs> And it, you know, but it was, it was a really good learning experience because you can sort of figure out this idea will work in this context or this situation, uh -huh. or you might learn a different fingering or, or a different way to play the same lick in a different position or, or something like that. So that's sort of how I, uh, worked in you know being able to make mistakes yeah and you know a lot of times we're playing in a restaurant either people aren't listening or they're getting drunk already and not able to listen and it's and, okay yeah yeah it's totally okay <laughs> and no but there's no record label or people trying to buy your cds or yeah festival promoters or anything like that so you can just do whatever you want but uh you know that that helped me a lot because when we were playing pretty regularly, I could go, you know, I could go try stuff out there and then just, you know, sort of accidentally work it into shows on the weekends. Yeah. Out on the road. After you've sort of smoothed out the rough. Hmm. 
rough parts. Not even that sometimes. It would just, right. you, you know, it would just sort of fall in because it, it was better for this context than it was for this context, okay. this idea that you'd have. And it it was a really, it's just a really good way to to try stuff out. And not everybody has that that situational experience, so that's maybe not the the best way to recommend for people to do that but get yourself a weekly gig at, yeah. that's low pressure and and mm-hmm. with people who are willing to let you be experimental yeah moving along quickly the way i started noticing your playing is you have a lot of videos of you, mostly of you using detuners <laughs> how did that become a fascination or what what's what's with that <laughs> well there was a there was a guy in in the Midwest named Harold Goad, and he, he passed away last year. But he he was a he was part of this gospel band, the very Chuck Wagon Gang style, and he played he played banjo and guitar and mandolin. And when I was maybe fourteen or fifteen, uh, I have Cheetah Keys on my banjo. And they're the detuners that I use. Okay. They'd just come out, and he had somehow gotten hooked up with the guy that made them to sell them. Okay. And he, uh, Harold used to be an Amway salesman, and he could he could sell shoes to a guy that didn't have any feet. He was just <laughs> he was great at it. And I I bought a pair when I was fourteen or fifteen years old, and they've been on whatever main, my main banjo is ever since. So I learned. And, you know, if you study Scruggs, you've got to learn Randy Lynn Rag and Flint Hill Special oh, yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. And um, that had occurred, and I played all that stuff throughout the years, you know. And then uh, at some point, I'd started just sort of around the house, just like... With palm muting like that? Yeah, just like trying huh. to be steel guitar and, and yeah. there's not much you can do because you're only alternating between two notes but yeah. it was sort of fun and then um, Nick Dauphiné who plays in the Larry Stevenson band with me we moved to Asheville about the same time and got to know each other and he asked me to play on a record that he uh, he did with his brother called Empty Teardrops and that title track I was trying to figure out they did it in F so I decided I was going to tune the banjo down to F and I, I was trying to figure out how to play the melody because I don't I don't know I, I feel really strongly about you know if you have two breaks in a song two banjo breaks in a song really try to play the melody of the first one and just really state it solid I, I actually really noticed that about your playing I listened and then to it a bit and then if that, you, that's really apparent if there's a second break do whatever you want mm-hmm. just get after it but I was trying to figure out how to play the melody on this song and the only way that I figured out how to do it was with the tuners. Or something close to that. I don't remember exactly. And it would the song be a was. step down, of course. Yeah. And that was, you know, we that record got a little attention with uh, with some a few people and got some radio play and and John Weisberger in uh, Nashville's always been very helpful to me in my career and he said you know you really ought to if you ever make a banjo record you should you should write some tuner tunes like nobody does tuner tunes anymore right and i started like 
I never could write any, but I thought I'd learn a bunch. And Jeremy Stevens put me in touch with this old Buddy Rose record, and it had some tuner tunes on it. And Walter Hensley has a great record, hmm. uh, which I don't, I think it's called New Bluegrass or something. And it's, it's actually been rebranded as something else, but the original record is called something like New Bluegrass. And there are a ton of tuner tunes on there. plays like East Virginia Blues out of detuning and uh, Down in the Willow Garden. And he has a couple of original Ooh, that would be a good one. I can, mm-hmm. I can picture that one. Yeah. And it's in detuning, so, you know, if you turn that one up, you've got a B minor chord. Yeah. Yep. So he played on that for Down in the Willow Garden and East Virginia Blues. But I started doing that, and then all those, you know, Instagram got really big, and you had all those flashback Friday and throwback Thursday and <laughs> Sunday Mondays fun day and, and right, all yeah. that fun stuff. And I, John, John has since moved to Asheville, North Carolina. He's taken up a position. I was going to mention uh, that. I think he's over by you now. Mm-hmm. He took up a position at Crossroads Records, and that when uh, when all that was coming about, he would visit regularly. Uh-huh. And then you know he was with Chris Jones at the time, and yeah. they were coming over to record, and we'd always go to lunch and talk and stuff and one day I just made a joke and I said I ought to start Tuner Tune Thursdays oh no and then you know I, I just I just sort of said it and we went on about a conversation and about a month later I remember that I'd said that and I I forget what the first one I did was but I just you know I was sitting around the house one day didn't have anything to do and I mm-hmm. recorded whatever the first one was and just put hashtag Tuner Tune Thursdays on there John shared it on Facebook, which, which I no longer have, but I had at the time. And, you know, the next week I did another one, and I get this notification from Ned Luberecki, and Ned had picked it up and wrote a tuner tune and taken the hashtag with it. Oh. And then, you know, there was sort of like this brief blip of, oh, I've got something here. And then... You know, nothing sort of happened again for a couple months. Okay. But this this last festival season, uh, 2018, we'd go out places and people would be like, man, I love those videos. I'm like, how are you seeing these videos? <laughs> That's how I found you. And like, you know, Kyle Tuttle and, and Dax and Lewis and uh-huh. all these banjo players are coming up to me like, man, that's awesome. I'm like, I just... Have you gotten any other than Ned... Has anybody else jumped on and, and tried to participate? There no? have been no other artistic submissions, but okay. uh, 
if you have a tuner tune out there and you would like to do it, just record the tune and do hashtag tuner tune Thursday. And you check it and try to. I check it from time to time okay. and see what's. All it's right. mostly just me and that one Ned video, but. I didn't even realize how that it had spread that far. I thought it was just your thing that you make these these tuner videos. I'm glad I know that now. That'll no, be a good challenge. Yeah, it's it's really fun. There's a guy at home, uh, Don Lewis, actually, who I, I mentioned before. He's got a banjo that's got uh, it's got cam tuners on it and four Keith tuners. Wow! And I'm gonna go over there one day and just figure out this weird combination of things that you I'll can be make able to three do. yeah like three different mm-hmm. adjustments between the two different styles yeah. exactly that's oh yeah now you're really talking pedal steel territory yeah i've i've not been that brave yet though, it's getting so. complicated um but i, I do want to go through the rest of you know your your gear and what you're using but i wanted to remind you it sounded really intriguing you mentioned earlier that there was a midwest what did you what oh, were you saying? There's a, mi- a there's Midwest a, technique uh, of playing banjo? Let me tune this thing real quick. There's a thing, when we first started talking, you said, um, you know, it'd be great if I could figure out things that were unique about my playing to to talk about. And I, I racked my brain, and the only thing that I could think of was this. There's a banjo player out in the in Arkansas named Robbie Boone. And everybody listening, if you're not familiar with Robbie Boone, look up Robbie Boone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of banjo players that would not be playing the way they do if it weren't for Robbie Boone. I'm one of them. Aaron McDerris is one of them. Uh, John Meyer, Janice Martin, we wouldn't be who we are if it weren't for Robbie Boone. And we all do this thing, and you can hear it in Aaron's playing. It's I heard it. I heard that. That Mashville Brigade record that mm-hmm. they did a few years ago, Brandon Rickman and Daryl Webb and Aaron and a couple other people. And Aaron did this this thing that I've never heard anybody that's not from that little pocket do it. So I think we've sort of traced it back. Robbie, there's a guy named Kenny Cantrell who used to have a band in Arkansas and played with Frank Ray for a number of years that really influenced Robbie. And and the rest of us as well, because he's he's still playing and was playing when we were all learning. Is it related to Kyle? He's not. Okay. That I'm aware of. But uh, uh, I gotta think about what the what the non-example of this would be. Normally, there's a there's a banjo thing where you do, where you do a pull off, and all of us go. Okay. So in context, it would be like. But we would go. And the difference is that you're picking it rather rather than than pulling it off? uh, You'd go. Okay. And there's not that middle third or the. You're essentially adding a pick stroke. Uh Uh-huh. And it's such a small, minute thing. It's not something you would ever think about. Yeah. But I've never heard any other... Like, I've never heard an East Coast player do it. I've never heard a West Coast player do it. Only that little pocket of... And you go back and listen to, uh, to like I said, the Mashable Brigade record or any of the stuff that Aaron cut with Larry. Okay. And the stuff he's doing with Rhonda now, you'll hear him do it. Okay. And it's really... And you do that too? 
Yeah, and I, you know, it's not something I ever thought about because Kenny had this. Uh, I suspected it was from Kenny because he had this tune called uh, "Flowers Creek." <laughs> And I'd learned that at some point, and uh, when I was learning, and yeah, it's got that. Uh huh. Rather than going. Yeah. And uh, I thought it, I was trying to figure out where that came from because somebody pointed out to had pointed it out to me at one point, and then I started hearing Aaron do it, and I was like, "Where did we get this?" <laughs> Because, you know, Earl never had did that. Had he identified that? or did... I don't know if he has. I haven't talked to him about it. Yeah. I'm going to ask him next time I see him, though. Yeah. Cause... That's funny. But, but yeah, Robbie does it, and I'm trying to figure out where it came from, and that's that's about the only thing I can That's I so can cool. Figure. It's it's so rare to f- to find those things anymore mm-hmm. because everybody is, there's just so much information about what yeah. everyone's doing. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to get those little pockets of a musical dialect. Yeah. What's this instrument that you have? Uh, this is my, my main road banjo with dead strings. Uh, it's a 2011 Hatfield Buck Creek. Um, I've had it since Spigma of 2012. It's all exactly the way it came to me, except I, I put a Huber head on it, and I made bridges for a while, and uh, one of my bridges is on here. Oh, very cool. And um, you're no the, longer doing that, I take it. I just don't have the space or the equipment in Asheville okay. to to do it. I was working at a shop. I wasn't working at a shop in Kansas City. A guy in Kansas City let me use his shop and his tools to uh, to build these, and um, I cranked out about forty or fifty. And because when I was a teenager, which is when I started building the bridges, I you know I couldn't. I couldn't afford a Snuffy Smith or a, uh-huh. or a, you whatever know, a the fancy ones were. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't do it. So I, you know, I had my grandpa had tools and I had plenty of wood. Uh-huh. So I, I just made them, and the first ones Turn, were turned very, out pretty well. Were very rough. Okay, the yeah, first, I bet. The first twenty or thirty were not good, but the twenty or thirty after that were, were okay. And that's still primarily what I use. Blake Williams has one on his chief. And I, I gave a couple out to uh, to some other people to try, but they ended up not really working for them. Well, that's cool. But what what do you prefer about the Huber head? That's what I use too, actually. But I'm I'm interested of what you I, what made you try that. I don't know what the uh, the scientific reasoning is, but I like the whatever the thicker frosting mm-hmm. provides. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sound wise, you mean? Yeah. Okay. I, this banjo came with a with just a standard Remo head, as did all my banjos that I have. But they just—I don't even know really how to describe what I didn't like about that head on a banjo. But I—I uh, I had, I had, and maybe this is all psychological. I don't know. But I had read somewhere that the the older heads used to be frosted a little thicker and mm-hmm. that's why Steve had tried to have them make them this way so they're a little thicker right. and I I tried one and I liked it and that's all I've that's all I've been using ever since. Yeah, yeah, cool. And um 
Is what's your banjo made of? Is that a mahogany? Yeah, the Buck Creek is the is his mahogany banjo. Okay, it's his, well, it's it's his lowest tier mahogany oh. banjo. There's no frills. There's no inlay in the resonator or, or purfling or whatever that's called. And it's just Arthur Hatfield's whole whole thing is making a professional quality banjo at an affordable price. And I think this sure. model's twenty eight hundred dollars right now. Okay, but you still um, get it's still pro quality it's just oh, like yeah. you said it's not mm-hmm. the none of the gold plated engraved most inlaid. of the most of the people that are playing his banjos are playing a buck creek model with mm-hmm. a few exceptions so it's a it's a good good quality banjo and it's, it's it's actually funny because there are things about this banjo that are not my preference such as uh it's mahogany for one i do like okay. a maple banjo and the neck is a lot thinner my other banjo, I've got a 2003 Granada that I purchased from Blake Williams, and it's got a really nice, fat okay. Granada maple neck, and I, I really, really like that. And this one's thinner than that. And but, So if you prefer the maple and you prefer the chunkier neck, why is it that you're taking you this know, one out? You're just being protective of um, the other one? Well, I have a, I've got an endorsement deal with Arthur, so I'm, I'm playing it. Partly because of that, but it's I've become so used to how it feels and how it sounds and what I can and can't do with it. Okay, that it's it's almost more versatile because I know I know it so intimately. Huh. And Interesting. I was trying to describe this to somebody earlier out here at the festival that uh, I'm playing the Granada on stage today. I bought I brought this because it had the tuners on it. And I oh, knew, yeah. I knew okay. we'd talk about that. But uh, I was playing the Granada out there earlier, and um, I can't play that banjo in all situations. It doesn't sound good with new guitars. Interesting. Uh, there's a lot of people around Asheville that have newer callings and and new Martins, and that banjo, it doesn't sound good And what do you consider new just for the... In the... Made in the last 10 years or so. Okay. Uh, it's something about the overtones with those two, because the the Granada's gotten really dry, and if you put it with a, I don't know what musically speaking you'd call the opposite of dry. Wet seems <laughs> seems wrong, but like uh, a rich, uh, yeah, really just sort of full of overtones complex, and, and yeah. new sounding. It, it just it, it just doesn't sound right, and and this banjo is is much more versatile in those situations. Uh, our guitar player has a an older Martin guitar, and it, I feel comfortable playing both banjos with that guitar, but okay. most of the time the Granada doesn't work well with new instruments. And this one's got a lot of sustain, and, and just, it's very versatile and and can handle those those things better, it seems. So I tend to play it more in local shows and 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 out on the road and, and this one will work better with a with a poor quality sound system too. Uh the the Gibson's very unforgiving if the sound Okay. Is bad. <laughs> gotcha. Uh so what else is in your anything else in your setup that you're partial to, at least in terms of microphones or tuners or your cheetah keys or anything like that to talk about? I'm really hooked on these uh the J60 Plus Deodario 
strings. I what's think the they're... what's the thing with those? Um, they're they're uh, they're light. They're very light, but they they still have they still have a nice resistance. They're not. I don't have to work for it, but at the same time, they're not loose and floppy. And yeah. Which is kind of a best of both worlds sort of sort of thing. Ironic because I think it's a, I think it's nine and a half, eleven and twelve, twenty, which is a very light set. Yeah, but yeah, sure is. At the, I don't know if it's the cores they're using or the way they're run through everything, but they they just have a lot of a lot more resistance than even like the the regular light set that they sell, which is which is a ten. I think so. Okay. I don't know if it's the nine and a half thing, but. And I guess when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking mostly about the first string because there's a lot of, and you get up the neck especially. There's a lot of first string stuff and backup and okay, we want a nice solid sound rather mm-hmm. than like a twangy, uh, yeah, or stringy sound or just something that's going to hurt your fingers like a, excuse me, like a like an eleven or something would. Uh-huh. I can't do anything if the strings are that heavy because if you start an eleven and you just go up, it's it's rough. Yeah, yeah. Earl used mediums for all that stuff on his banjo the the entire time that he lived. He used mediums, and I never could understand. Sonny does the same thing. Jens Kruger does the same thing. I just, I guess, I just don't have the strength to, to finger strength to push those strings. I don't know. Yeah, got to work your way up, I guess, maybe, or yeah, whatever mm-hmm. you're used to. And if it's working, then don't mess with it. I suppose. Yeah. Anything else to say? Any other like parting words of of wisdom for people people learning and and digging your playing? Sort of a maybe in conflict with all that stuff about learning Earl Scruggs real solid. The other thing that I would say is just play everything. Because growing up in Kansas, there were like two bluegrass bands, <laughs> and if you wanted to play music, you had to play anything you could get a hold of. Mm-hmm. If there was a, you know, a singer-songwriter playing at a coffee shop one night, play with them or play in a rock band or play in a blues band. Or, yeah. I played in a blues band in college. And, with your banjo? And, uh, yeah. It was uh, this guy in my hometown had this, he was in like a hardcore, like, like a, a bb king style blues band mm-hmm. and he wanted to do this little like acoustic side project it was all blues music and he wanted a banjo for some reason and i was like all right fine <laughs> and you know not to say that i was good at playing any of that stuff but having that that broader perspective of music you was, feel like it helped you yeah mm-hmm. yeah excellent right. um tell everyone where they can find your your stuff online or, or track you down if they want to come see a show or buy a CD or something. Uh, the the fastest way to do it is go to uh, the Larry Stevenson Band dot com. Uh, the tour schedule is on there. All of the the product is on there, including the the one CD that I'm on, which is entitled Thirty. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm on that record by the Dauphiné Brothers, which is spelled awful funny. The the title of the yeah, record I is guess uh, that it was pronounced that way. Yeah. Uh, the title of the record is called Empty Teardrops, and those are the um, the two easiest places to find me. Otherwise, type that hashtag into social media. And yeah, what is it? Tuner Tune Thursday? Tuner Tune Thursday. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try to keep tabs on that one. 
Yeah, the the problem is thinking of I'm I got ahead of myself because now I got to keep thinking of stuff to play with the tuners. So well, hopefully, I mean, what I hope for your sake is that maybe other people will take it and run with it, and yeah, you'll get credit for starting it, but it won't just be on you. Oh. Like there's there's enough of us banjoists yeah. out there. Take we can the, all contribute. Take the pressure off a of poor Midwest fella. That's... Yeah, exactly. Mm. All right, man. Well, thanks again for for giving us all your time. Um, yeah, pleasure to chat with you. It's been fun. I don't get to talk about the banjo very often, oddly enough. I'm I'm here for you <laughs> any time. All right, man. Cheers. Yeah. See you. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to Derek Vaden of the Larry Stevenson Band. Thank you very much to today's Patreon supporters. That's Sean Downing and Joshua Agkison. Thank you to Jerry Eicher of the Old Hippie Bluegrass Show for providing the RV studio for today's interview. Uh, once again... Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. Contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com and check out the show notes for all the links to Jerry Eichert's show, to Aaron Jonah Lewis's classic banjo album, and all that sorts of fun stuff. Don't forget to subscribe to Patreon if you want to get Eli Gilbert's custom lesson based on the playing of Derek Vaden and many others as the episodes roll on. But that's going to do it for today. I hope to see you all next time for another great episode. Hope you're all having a great 2020 so far and uh, looking forward to spending the year with you. There are a lot of banjo topics to still explore, a lot of great guests to still talk to. Stay tuned. Over and out. I'll see you next time. Golly, I'm a rambler.